we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and you're listening to Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today, I'm talking to oceanographer Edith Witter. Edith has spent her life exploring light and life in the world's deep sea. She became fascinated with bioluminescence. Bioluminescence is light produced by a chemical reaction within a living organism, and it's more common in those dark depths than you may think. Here, Edith talks about her adventures as a deep sea diver, what it's like discovering so many new creatures, and why ocean exploration will be a key to facing up to the world's environmental challenges. Thanks so much for joining me today, Edith. Now, you've spent more time than anyone else in the deep sea. Very few people have the opportunity to see what you've seen. Can you take me through what you saw on your very first deep dive from the beginning of the dive to the moment you're sitting at the bottom? Well, I think people that have been scuba diving know a little bit what the beginning looks like. There's that big transition when you go from air to water and the colors immediately change because it's really only blue light that travels furthest through seawater and the other colors gradually disappear. So things get blue very quickly. And then as you're dropping down, though, uh, the intensity changes pretty uh, dramatically, although your eye doesn't always see it that way, but it's, it's disappearing pretty fast. And there's this light field around you that's just all gradients. The underwater environment is a world of gradients. It's gradients of light, gradients of temperature, gradients of salinity no hard surfaces. And on that first dive, there were some animals in the water, but not a whole lot. It wasn't super dramatic until I got down to 800 feet and I turned out the lights. And I did that because I knew I would see bioluminescence, but I just was in no way prepared for the amount that I saw. It was, I was just instantly surrounded by this swirling light show that looked like Van Gogh's Starry Night. And it was breathtakingly beautiful, but also kind of mystifying because I knew at that point how much energy it takes for animals to produce light. And I just couldn't understand how this could be going on at this kind of level and not be one of the most important things going on in the ocean. And why weren't more people studying it? Obviously, when people think of the deep sea, they sort of think of extreme darkness. But you say that light plays a really big part down there. Why is that? Like, why are these creatures creating light down there? So if you've ever been out in the open ocean environment, you may have noticed one of its most salient features is that there's no place to hide. There's no trees or bushes to hide behind. And yet animals out there have to play the same kind of games of hide and seek that animals on land do. Predators need to be able to sneak up on prey and prey want to hide from predators, but where? 
The only place to hide is in the dark depths. And so as animals developed eyes that could detect prey at a distance, the prey either had to be able to outswim the predators to survive or find a way to hide. And a lot of them found a way to hide by going down into the dark depths. So the deeper they went, the harder they were to see, but then it was harder for them to survive, to find food and find mates. And so there was a lot of selection pressure to develop this ability to make light, to survive in the dark. Edith has discovered countless new species of deep sea animals, completely new to science. But there's one that stands out, a glowing octopus. One of the most interesting animals you mentioned in your new book was the glowing sucker octopus. Could you tell me a little bit about it and, you know, what was it like the first time you spotted it? Well, it's a bizarre looking octopus because it's got webbing between the arms. So it looks kind of like an umbrella. And the first time I saw it from the submersible, it was hanging upside down with its arms spread out like an upside down umbrella. And then as we approached it, it started to bring the arms together into a balloon, a big formed itself into kind of this big red balloon. And, and then it twisted around and started to pulse like a Medusa to swim away from us. It was, it was just a very, very strange looking creature. And we managed to capture it in very good condition and bring it back up into the lab. And so I had it in a big tank in the lab and I was photographing it. And it wasn't, wasn't behaving like any octopus I'd ever seen in a tank before because it wasn't hanging on with its suckers to anything. It was just floating around in the center, contorting its body in all these really interesting ways. And it had just spread itself open wide you know, so that we could see the underside of the umbrella. And I was photographing it. My postdoc at the time, Sanka Johnson, leaned over my shoulder and he said, you know, those don't look much like suckers. And I took the camera down and we were both looking at it and we both agreed they looked more like photophores, like light organs. So we grabbed the octopus and brought it into a dark room. And sure enough, they twinkled blue light. It was just amazing. And an amazing discovery because nobody had ever seen any octopus do anything like that before. There are few octopuses that can produce bioluminescence, but they, um, they use it to attract a mate. They have light organ around the mouth of the female for only during the mating season. Um, so this was something completely different. And it turned out it was even more exciting when we got to examine those light organs and discovered that they are actually suckers turning into light organs because you could still see the vestigial sucker muscles. So it was evolution caught in the act, which was a really thrilling discovery. And one of the biggest challenges for deep sea scientists like yourself is observing everything going on down there without disturbing it. So you invented the eye in the sea. So can you sort of tell us about that piece of technology and the first time it was deployed? Yeah, so I had for a long time diving in submersibles wondered, you know, how many animals are there out there just beyond the range of my lights that can see me, but I can't see them. And how will I ever find that out? Because we go down there in these big noisy machines that have really, really bright lights on them. And these animals are used to living in darkness and have eyes that are super, super sensitive. And our, you know, our lights must be blinding to them. So I wanted to develop a camera that I could leave on the bottom that could see without being seen. Well, we do that all the time for noc- when we're studying nocturnal animals by using infrared cameras and infrared lights. But you can't do that in the ocean because infrared light is absorbed so thoroughly by seawater. 
Um, so I wanted to find, figure out if there was a wavelength I could use that would allow me to see them, but them not to see me. So I was experimenting with red light. Most animals down there only see blue light. It's pretty much the, the primary color of sunlight penetrating through seawater and of bioluminescence as well. Um, but I was really having a tough time with it because I could tell that even though the red light was less obtrusive, they were still seeing it. Uh, and I found inspiration from a deep sea fish that's called the stoplight fish, which is a remarkable fish because like a lot of fish, it has blue flashlights um, that it can see with uh, under its eye, near its eyes, but it's got two enormous flashlights under each eye that are red. And it's really unusual because it can not only see and emit blue light, it can see and emit red light. And so it can use it like a sniper scope to sneak up on animals that can, uh, can't see the red light. But what's interesting about it is I had measured the color of that red and discovered that it had this really sharp cutoff. And there was a filter over the, um, the light organ that cut out all of the shorter wavelengths like the oranges and the yellows. And so I imitated that for the eye in the sea and got a cutoff filter that I actually had a special order that did exactly that. And then the other thing I wanted to be able to do was to see how animals responded to different types of bioluminescence. So I developed this thing called the electronic jellyfish that imitated certain bioluminescent displays, mostly of, of jellyfish, which is why we called it the um, electronic jellyfish or e-jelly, uh, particularly this one pinwheel display that is uh, common to a, a, a pretty common deep sea jellyfish. Um, and the first time I got to deploy that system, the eye in the sea, was in 2004 in the Gulf of Mexico. And I left it down at a kind of oasis on the bottom of the ocean, someplace I thought large predators might patrol. And I had programmed it so that the first four hours it was down there, the e-jelly wasn't on. And I just wanted to see how animals responded to the red lights. And sure enough, they weren't seeing it. I could tell. They, I mean, they would swim right towards it. They just were, I had my window into the deep sea and I, it just was so thrilling to me. But then four hours into the deployment, I had programmed the electronic jellyfish to come on for the first time with that pinwheel display. 86 seconds after it came on for the first time, we recorded a squid over six feet long attacking it. And it was completely new to science, couldn't even be placed in any known scientific family. So that was a huge deal. What's it like constantly finding new species? Well, I think this is kind of in our DNA, this, this joy at discovery. Uh, human beings are, are just naturally explorers. And there is so much of our planet that we haven't explored. Uh, I mean, people have no concept of how little of the ocean we've actually explored. Usually they give numbers of like 5%. That's just based on mapping from a, a, a ship at the surface. It's not actually visiting it. And now it's quite a bit more than 5% that's been mapped that way. We're getting up towards 30% now. But if you're talking about actually going down and visiting, it's less than 0.05%. So we live on this ocean planet that we know so incredibly little about. And 
it is because we are an ocean planet that that we sustain life, but we really don't know the particulars of how that's done. And so exploring is essential. It's always been essential to our survival. And it's really essential right now because we have to understand these life support systems much better than we do before we destroy them. The giant squid is one of the ocean's most elusive creatures. That's why in 2012, Edith and a team of scientists made international news when they finally captured the kraken on film. You say in your book that getting footage of this giant squid was sort of the holy grail of natural history cinematography. Can you kind of tell me what it was like capturing that first footage? Well, actually, they got it on camera <laughs> with me screaming my head off. <laughs> um, it was it was amazing. I mean, really, there's there's no feeling like it on on Earth to be able to have something like that. It was it was so much vindication for what I'd been saying about you know, how we've been exploring the ocean wrong. And if we just do it differently, there's so much more we'd see. And and it was just such a thrill. This is a creature that's been part of legend for so long. You know, it was called the Kraken. And there were all kinds of horrific tales about it. Jules Verne's um, being one of the most famous. But, um, you know, we we got recordings of it and started to learn something about it, you know, how it hunts and, you know, what its behavior is like. And it wasn't really a monster at all. Um, it, it actually seemed kind of shy, but huge. The one we recorded with it had its tentacles fully extended would have been as tall as a two-story building. Wow. And they can get as tall as a four-story building. Bloody hell. And... I guess there's so many things in the book that I would like, I'm just dying to bring up with you, but one of the most amazing things to read about in your book was Taylarpa. Can you explain the role of bioluminescence that, can you sort of explain the role bioluminescence played in the early navigation of our seas? Yeah. So the, the um, accomplishment of Polynesian sailors is almost mind boggling. I mean, if, if you've ever looked at a, picture of our planet from the Pacific side, it's almost entirely ocean. It's just blue as uh, you can barely see land at the, t at the edges. And there's these little tiny, tiny dots that are all of these islands scattered throughout the Pacific that Polynesian sailors would um, navigate to. And yet they didn't have any of the navigational tools that we consider absolutely essential. And so the question is, how on earth did they do it? They didn't have sextants. They, did, they didn't have any of the things that we consider essential. So they, you know, would use land fi finding tools like, you know, spotting clouds at a distance. And they would, they knew the migration patterns of birds. And so they, you know, they knew if they followed the the cuckoos, I think it was, um, at a certain time of year, they, they, could, they, they would go straight to one set of islands. Um, and they had dogs that they trained to bark when they smelled land. Um, but they also could read the ocean by the interference patterns that different islands would create. And so they had these things that were mystifying, I think, to early uh, um, explorers because they thought they were maps because they were were these um, palm fronds that were all tied together with little cowrie shells. 
that were sort of meant to indicate islands, but it, you know, there was no scale. It didn't make any sense. But what they really were, were a kind of mnemonic device to remind them of what the interference patterns were for the wave patterns and for what they call telapa, which is the deep stimulated bioluminescence, which we still don't really know exactly what it is. Um, and they used it all throughout the Pacific, the, you know, the Micronesians, the Polynesians, it was, it was, it was a very common tool um, and it was just part of their tradecraft. You quote World War II German U-boat commander Captain Rudhard Hardigan as saying the most dangerous feature of American waters is marine phosphorescence at night. Can you explain the science behind what he was saying and how that sort of set you on a whole new research path? Well, um, submarines moving through the water at night, you know, the whole point of a submarine is to be stealthy and unseen. Um, but the problem is they stir up bioluminescence and can be seen by their bioluminescence. And that's what that um, German uh, officer was referring to. And uh, it was something I think that a lot of captains were unaware of that they, they were that visible at night. And so actually a lot of my career was funded by the Office of Naval Research in the United States um, because they had this strategic interest in bioluminescence as a, a means of detecting submarines. So they, you know, what they wanted to know was pretty basic stuff, like where was the bioluminescence and, you know, when was it most likely to be brightest? And so where would they be seen and where, where would Soviet subs be seen? That kind of thing. In 1997, Edith arrived in Cuba to film the documentary, Cuba, Forbidden Depths. Closed off to the rest of the world, Edith was taken aback by a seemingly thriving ecosystem. You visited Cuba in 1997 when very few people could go there. From a marine biologist's perspective, what was it like? It was amazing. So it, it was some of the cleanest coastal waters I've ever seen because there's been so little development. And the harbour of Santiago was really interesting because it it basically is dead. It's a ghost harbor almost since there's no Soviet ships going in and out of there anymore. Um, hardly saw any motorized vessels at all. There was no smell of diesel. There was no sheen of oil on the water. Um, it, was, it was paradise. And that's what the coastline was like. And it's a very steep um, coastline. <clears throat> so we could make deep dives just offshore and you could you know you could see the shoreline and then you'd go down right right near it and it would be crystal crystal clear water so you know it is beautiful but you really worry about when development is allowed you know the the big hotels and are going to want to come in there and and populate that coastline um and i so hope that they can somehow protect it but you can already see the impact of you know, the, the neediness that the population, because fish are such an important part of their diet, they, they just, there's not enough food. And, and um, they try to limit the fishing uh, to make the, the seafood sustainable, but it's being overfished. And we would see these beautiful seamounts right near shore, you know, covered with very healthy uh, marine life but covered with fish line as well, fishing line. 
and and very few big fish left. Um, so it's it's a mixture. After the filming of Cuba Forbidden Depths, you talk in your book about how you had become sort of jaded about natural history documentaries and the need for a balance between science and entertainment. What do you think is the value in using documentaries to reveal the awesomeness of bioluminescence? Oh, I think documentaries are essential. It's just finding that right balance. Um, yeah, I, in the book, you know, I, I talked about some of the um, really bad documentaries that weren't even documentaries at all. It was it was fiction made to look like a documentary, um, and those I find really really distressing. Um, the television station that was doing that has stopped doing it, thank goodness. Um, but I, you know, I'm still dismayed by Shark Week and, and the, you know, the vilification of sharks um, is just so out of proportion when you, when you realize that, you know, there's, we hardly ever have more than 10 fatalities a year worldwide from shark attacks. I mean, you know, more people than that die of bee stings. It's crazy. And, and yet, you know, we're just decimating shark populations. You underwent a surgery at quite a young age, which resulted in temporary blindness. What was this time in your life like? And how pivotal was this experience to your future study of bioluminescence? Well, it was pretty disruptive of my plans. I uh, had decided I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was 11 years old, and I'd held firm to that goal um, right up to starting college. Um, at Tufts University, my freshman year, I, you know, uh, I was starting to have pretty severe back pain, and so went in for this surgery um, in uh, the beginning of the the year. The, uh, you know, the beginning of my second semester it would have been, um, and it didn't go right, and I ended up hemorrhaging into both my eyes, so I came too blind. Um, and a lot of other things went wrong too. Um, so I had a, a long stay in the hospital, four months. Um, by the time I got out, I could see pretty well out of one eye. Um, so, you know, it wasn't an extended period of blindness, but it sure left me appreciating vision <laughs> in the extreme and thinking a lot about what we used to form images. And, you know, for a while, all I could see was light and dark and, uh, that's not the same thing as um, being able to focus an image on your retina and, and figure out what's going on. And there, there was a lot of confusion sometimes about what I was seeing as uh, my vision started to clear. And I think, you know, referring back to that later in life when I was thinking about what these animals have to use for information in the deep sea, um, I, it was useful. From the glowing sucker octopus to finally capturing footage of the giant squid, each time Edith has dived into the ocean's depths, she's discovered something new and exciting. So why is space exploration so much more popular than ocean exploration? You talk a bit about um, how important JFK's moonshot speech was in, was in inspiring support for space exploration. And we've sort of been, I guess, unable to inspire the same sort of support for ocean exploration. What are some of the biggest challenges for ocean exploration and what are we missing out on by not doing it? Well, the, the biggest challenge for ocean exploration is chronic underfunding. 
Um, and it's it, it's not just a speech that's going to do it. I mean, the reason we had a moonshot was because basically the government wrote NASA a blank check, and they you know they used it well. Um, and, and but they also created an enormous public relations machine for um, conveying science to the public in ways that had never been done before. But it's all space science, and the interest is there from the public. In fact, more than I uh, appreciated originally um, when the documentary came out about our first filming of the giant squid, apparently there were coming out parties all over the, <laughs> the country for <laughs> giant squid. I know because people were sending me pictures of their giant squid cakes and their giant squid pinatas <laughs> and their giant squid tattoos inked in honor of the event. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> So there's there's a serious uh, interest in in these things deep sea. It's got to come from a political will that we haven't had yet. And you know, as we um, get further and further into climate change issues, I, I'm I think it's going to become more and more evident that you know um, environmental knowledge is going to be the difference between life and death in a lot of cases. And so we need to be pushing for ocean exploration and better ocean understanding because it is part of the life support machinery of the planet, a huge part of it. And we don't even begin to understand the intricacies. As an Australian, I feel like I have to ask, you say in your book that your childhood trip to Australia had a really big impact on you. Could you explain why? Uh, well. Um, First of all, I hated school uh, up until that point. And uh, when we lived in Australia, it was uh, in Kew, just outside Melbourne. Um, and I went to an amazing school called Press Hill um, that was sort of, I guess, uh, a predecessor of Montessori. You know, it was it was a really progressive school and um, it, just an absolutely remarkable woman that... Um, Mark, Margaret Little, the kids called her Mug. Is that right? Mug or Meg? Mug. No, I think it was a mug. Um, and um, uh, there was a tree house in every tree. And uh, we went on walkabout through the bush. And I learned to swing a billy and, you know, track wallabies. And oh my God, I just had the best experience there. Um, and you know, I decided when we were living in Australia that I wanted to become a biologist because of just the animal life was just fascinating to me. And um, but on our way home from Australia, we stopped in Fiji, and I got to explore a coral reef, and that's when I shifted from biology to marine biology. I want to go back to what you were sort of talking about in terms of exploration, because for me, I feel like that's quite a unique view on ocean conservation. So. Could you sort of tell me what you mean about um, the power of exploration in facing up to a lot of the environmental challenges we're facing today? So, as I as I said, human beings are explorers. It's essential to our existence that we be explorers. That's how we have survived. We've figured out, you know, by exploring what food is safe to eat, what animals are dangerous, what places we can we can live in. I mean, that's that's so much a part of who we are that, you know, babies 
from the moment of birth almost or trying to crawl away to figure out what's around the next corner. It's, it's a critical part of who we are um, and it's where a lot of our greatest discoveries have come from. Um, but in the weird thing that's happened in the ocean is our, our normal pattern as human beings has unfortunately been generally exploration followed by exploitation. Um, but it, remarkably in the ocean, we've managed to reverse it. We are exploiting the ocean before we've explored it. We've been dragging out every last fish. We've been filling it up with our toxins and our plastics and our pollution. And it's all part of our life support machinery. And it's all part of what it's gonna take to sustain life on this rock. And we haven't explored it enough to have created so much as a, um, a user's manual, let alone a repair manual. And if we don't know how it's supposed to work now, how are we gonna fix it later when we messed it up so completely that we can't even guess at how it used to work? That's what exploration is, is you know just figuring stuff out. And we need to figure a lot of stuff out really fast. So we need explorers now more than ever. Also explorers are by nature, they have to be optimists. You have to be able to take failure again and again and again and just muscle on. And that's the kind of thinking we need right now. I think that's a very inspiring note to end on. Thanks so much for chatting to me today, Edith. I was glad to do it. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and see you next time.